The Gospel lesson is written in the 17th chapter of Matthew, beginning at the first verse. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. On this Transfiguration Sunday, we explore the profound mystical experience described in today's gospel lesson. Of course, the description of this mystical event of the transfiguration relies on words that were formed to describe ordinary natural happenings. The vocabulary of earthly existence is inadequate here. And so the gospel writer relies on superlative expressions of outstanding light and beauty. Over the centuries, Artists have endeavored to visually express the wonderful and divine nature of this moment, too. I'm actually surprised they even try. The profoundly extraordinary character of the scene certainly beggars anything that can be created in paint by human hands. While some, like this Danish artist, try to capture the mystical in a realistic depiction of earthly things. Others illustrate the moment using more stylized or abstracted imagery to represent the spiritual. The transcendent nature of the experience is so otherworldly that a less realistic style actually seems the best choice. Our English word transfigure 
means to change appearance, transforming it into something more beautiful, more elevated. At the moment of the transfiguration, Christ's divine nature shines forth, usually cloaked in human flesh. That inward holiness is now revealed with the brilliance of godly glory. In this moment, his exterior physical appearance transforms to match the inward reality. It's a momentary glimpse of the divine glory concealed in flesh. The light of the world glows with the power of the sun, unearthly white and radiant. Yet his human presence never disappears. The disciples who've come with him still know he's Jesus. The two natures of Christ, truly God and truly man, these are made clear and obvious in this experience. Now, this profound mystical moment starts out in a commonplace way. Four men go on a hike up a mountain. Jesus invites just three of his disciples to go with him, James, John, and Peter. They're the ones closest to him. They are an inner circle within the inner circle of 12 disciples. James, John, and Peter are sometimes invited to see things the others do not. For example, they alone, by Jesus' instruction, witness the raising of the dead of Jairus' daughter. And after the Last Supper, they go farther than the others into the Garden of Gethsemane with Christ. On this day, Jesus leads these three up the mountain to be alone with them. He has something for their eyes alone to see. They hike up a mountain seeing a flesh-and-blood man leading the way. But on the top of the mountain, his godly, holy self is unmistakable. When they walk back down that mountain, re-entering the world of simple physical existence, the heavenly vision stays with them. They know that the godly and mystical are with them now, even when the physical is what's visibly present. In this mountaintop experience of faith, James, John, and Peter see and hear even more than the brilliant transfiguration of Christ. After the spectacular transformation of Jesus' appearance, two more figures appear with Jesus, talking with him. They are Moses and Elijah, two giants, of Jewish history. Now Moses, of course, is the great lawgiver, bringing the commandments of God down to the people from another mountain, Mount Sinai. Elijah is the beloved Old Testament prophet. Together, they are representative of the law and the prophets, which brings up an important statement of Christ recorded in Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
The reference to the law and the prophets here is a shorthand reference to Hebrew scriptures as a whole. So with this statement, Jesus declares he is the Christ, the Messiah of God, the fulfillment of all that was foretold. Therefore, the presence of Moses and Elijah at this moment of the transfiguration underscores that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Father. Then something else happens, and this is important. A bright cloud overshadows them, and a voice comes from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's a clear instruction. Jesus' words are to be heard. They are told to listen to him. We are supposed to listen too. But do we? The one to whom we are to listen is not just a man named Jesus, a wise man who said great things. He's God in the flesh, perfect, almighty, immutable, all-powerful, all-knowing, who calls us beloved. His words spoken for us and to us are treasures to cling to. Listening to the Lord, tuning into what he says, needs to be our priority. And yet, we want to tell him what to do. We want him to listen to us. We want to do the talking and have him do the listening. Our prayers so often are a list of wants and requests. Do this and do that for me. Our fears and yearnings taking center stage as we pray. We not only want to place our problems and the troubles of the world at his feet, but we want to describe just how he's supposed to solve them. So rather than praying, O Lord of my life, I am struggling, please help. Instead, we end up outlining how we want him to help. We not only want the Almighty to listen to the desires of our heart, the needs of our soul, we want the creator of the universe to hear our solutions. So do we really think a human mind conjuring up solutions will do a better job than God? There is a better way. Wisdom dictates that we pray for the Lord to help us in the way he knows we need to be helped. Doesn't that make more sense? God does know us better than we know ourselves, and he does know best how to help us. Of course, he sees the bigger picture. Yet it is so easy for us to provide the solutions to the problems that face us. Sadly, our solutions tend to be short-sighted, selfish, and impatient. The 23rd Psalm reminds us that the Lord is our shepherd. Good shepherd imagery is found throughout Scripture. 
In the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, Christ himself reminds us, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's beautiful imagery. Christ is the good shepherd caring for every need of the flock in a loving embrace. He will even die to save his sheep. And look at this group of woolly airheads. This is who we are. We are pitiful sheep, lacking good sense, always thinking the grass will be greener elsewhere, wanting to tell the shepherd which way he should lead us. So we stray from the safety of his protective and loving presence. Yet still the good shepherd seeks us out, providing the saving help we need. But we stupidly, arrogantly, and repeatedly turn away. We are the sheep bleating in frustration because we don't understand with our little lammy brains what the shepherd is planning for us. We bleat in frustration and anger and ignorance. But through it all, the shepherd stays with us, caring for us, leading us to life-giving springs of water. We are the sheep bleating for the shepherd's comfort, lamenting the miseries and hardships of life. We are the sheep bleating for the shepherd to let us go our own restless way, even a way that would leave us famished when he instead leads us to greener pastures. Look at the image. Who is the one with the answers to life? The shepherd or the lamb? We are obstinate and wayward, but our shepherd will lay down his life for us anyway. We worship him for it. Because even through the haze of our brokenness, we see the shining glory of the divine shepherd who loves us. I invite you now to stand as you are able and pray aloud with me the short prayer here. And so we pray, O Lord, shepherd me beyond my wants, beyond my fears, from death into life. Amen.